Peter one day in the boat with other disciples looked out some distance from the boat and they saw a figure walking toward them. They were afraid at that moment because they thought he was a spirit or a ghost or probably they thought he was a demon of some sort. And the Lord, who was the one walking on the water toward them, being God, knew that they were afraid, and so he responded to their fear. And he said to them at that moment, Guys, don't be afraid. It's me. Now, Peter responded with something that I doubt would even enter my mind or yours. Peter responded, Lord, if it be you, bid me come unto thee. I were there I, that day, I would say, you go for it, Peter. Peter then did something that I know none of us would have done. When the Lord said to him in response to his encouragement, bid me come to you, the Lord said, come. Great invitation. Peter stepped over the side of that boat at that moment and began to walk toward Christ on the water. So enamored was he with this one individual, this Lord, this Savior, this risen Christ. So enamored was he with him that he paid no attention to the fact that he was walking on water. And Peter did find something that distracted him a bit. He looked off into the distance and he saw clouds billowing. And he knew at that moment, being a fisherman, what it meant. A storm is coming, and when a storm hits this great sea, few people survive on it in a boat, let alone walking on the water. And as the clouds billowed, the winds begin to blow, and with the winds blowing comes the waves rolling. And Peter, being an expert fisherman, knew full well that he could not survive in that kind of waves, and that kind of storm. And it was at that instance when he saw the storm brewing, the waves rolling, the clouds billowing, it was at that moment that Peter began to sink in the water. Then he did the only thing he could do. Peter turned and looked to the Lord and said just this one thing, Lord, Save me. And the Lord, in response to that heart cry, reached down and picked Peter up and saved him at that moment. I don't know whether you're in a storm right now or not. I've been in some in my life. You've been in a few? Hello? Yeah. If you're not in one right now, you know already that one is coming soon. And this much I know, when the storm brews, when you see it coming, or when it just suddenly unloads on you and you don't even see it coming, it's unexpected, there is one thing you need to do and I need to do, and that's what Peter did in that day, instantly turn in the storm and from the storm and look to Jesus. It's the only help in life that is sure and secure and salvific. It saves you in the storm. Now there's one problem that we have. Peter could turn and look at the face of Christ, but Christ is not here. Last time I checked the Bible, he ascended, 
and he's at the right hand of the Father. He is not present. Where am I going to go to see Jesus in the midst of my storm? Pretty good question. Where do I go? And I want to suggest to you the poet answered that question full well when he said, I see my Lord in the Bible whenever I chance to look. He's the theme of the Bible, the center, the heart of the book. He's the rose of Sharon, the lily fair. Whenever I open my Bible, the Lord of heaven is there. That's where I see him pictured and portrayed. The poet understood this. He's in every one of the 66 books of the Bible. He's in every chapter of every one of those books. He's in every paragraph. He's in every sentence. He's in every phrase. He's in every word. He's in every syllable. He's in every crossing of the T and dotting of the I. I see my Lord where? In the Bible. In this new series called Portraits, I'm asking you, and I know those of us who know him have no greater joy and delight than to see the word pictures of Christ in the Bible and to turn our eyes on him. I want to set it up for you this way. There was an Old Testament prophet and in effect a New Testament prophet, Ezekiel and John, who each had the same vision. A vision of this wonderful person, picture, portrait of Christ. They saw him in four four-faced creatures. Not one creature, each having a separate face, but all four creatures looking the same, having four faces each. And this was the faces they wore. These were the faces the prophets saw. First was the face of a lion, then the face of an ox, then the face of a man, and then the face of an eagle. And it's like, uh, that's a pretty weird creature. Oh no, not weird. For each of those faces portray for us what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the greatest portraits of Christ found in all the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw those four faces. Matthew saw the Lord Jesus wearing the face of a lion. The lion's the king of the beasts, and he's trying to say in his great portrait of Christ called the whole book of Matthew. He's trying to portray in that gospel Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews, convincing the Jews, this is your Messiah, Jesus. Mark, Mark saw him wearing the face of an ox. What's an ox? It's a creature that simply was created to do the bidding of his master. His shoulder is put to the plow when the master calls him to plow the field. He's a servant. And no wonder that Matthew calls him for all the Gentiles that he writes primarily through and for all who will read this great portrait of Christ that Mark paints. He is the servant of God. And more than that, the book of Luke expands these portraits by showing us the human side of the Lord Jesus, the human face. And 
No wonder the Lord Jesus is described in this phrase in Luke's gospel more than all the other gospels put together. It's this phrase. He's the son of man. And then you come to John's great gospel. And in that gospel, Jesus wears the face or is portrayed and pictured as wearing the face of an eagle, that bird that soars the highest in the heavens, far above any other birds or fowl that we know of in this land or on this earth. His nest often is in the highest clefts of the rock, again, far above any other of the birds. That speaks of his loftiness, and when John sees Jesus wearing the face of an eagle, he's seeing Jesus as God far above all. And that's why I've chosen. I think it's the loftiest picture you could have of the Lord Jesus. I've chosen the book of John to pull four pictures out of for you in this month so that you get a fresh look at the Lord Jesus. Now, I already said it. If you haven't been in the storm, you're going to be. And please, please let the Spirit of God remind you when you're in those storms, look to the portraits of Jesus. I bring you to the first that's in the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 3, and then verse number 10. It's the portrait of Christ described in word picture as the Word. Christ is the Word. Now, watch how John describes him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. I want to do something with you in this great, familiar first chapter of John. There's a portrait of Christ called the Word. I want to do something with you I've never done. I want you to see the four active verbs that are used to describe or paint the picture of Jesus is the word. Here's the first verb. He was. The word was. Watch this. He was in the beginning. In the beginning, the word was. Jesus was there in the beginning. At uh, Stan's funeral this last week, we went to the 90th Psalm and saw that David painted this same picture. David said, from everlasting, Psalm 92, to everlasting, thou art God. What did he mean by that? He meant that before time began, the word logos, Jesus, was existent in eternity past. And he meant when time comes to an end, the word, Jesus, will be present in the future eternity. Everlasting future. Jesus present. 
But it doesn't mean from everlasting you were there and into eternity you were there. It also bridges the gap between the beginning and the end and says in essence, though he doesn't directly state it, he says in essence there is a canopy over time in which God exists and that canopy is still eternity. We live in time and are confined by it. But where is God? I know he dwells in us and among us, but he also is in heaven seated upon the throne in an eternal forever place. So from everlasting to everlasting and in present eternity, God is. And Jesus is described as exactly that. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end and all that is between. And so much so if you have any insight into this at all, and I can't comprehend or describe it, but I can say to you this. He is so eternal and unconfined by time that when he looks at eternity past, as he exists in eternity in heaven right now, and as he will forever exist, he looks at all that and says, I am. Are you with me? I am. I am eternally, always was, now and forever present. Now, how does that help us in this picture? It helps us understand there is absolutely no storm in any point of time that can occur in my life and yours that upsets or dethrones God. He is forever existent, not moved by my storm. You know, that's pretty awesome. It's all wrapped up in the word was. The word was in the beginning, will be in the end, and is now eternal, the great I am. But don't leave it there. He also, as the word in the beginning, was with God. And more than that, he was God. Pretty awesome. You know what that means? Ask the question, what was he before time began? David gives us some answers in the Psalms and in Moses in a number of his writings, but it goes something like this. He was, before time began, the Lord of glory. What does that mean? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw Jesus high and lifted up at or in the presence, equal with, present with God in time past. And when Isaiah saw him, he saw angels say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Now why is he called holy, holy, holy? I heard a pastor say one time in a message trying to just answer that question, why he's called holy, 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 unceasingly. It's because he's not just holy, he's holy, holy. And he's not just holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And I walked away and I went, well, thank you for that. Didn't answer my question. Why is he called by the angels unceasingly? 
repetitively, night and day, through eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. You talk about a song that repeats itself. The angels unceasingly sang, holy, holy, holy. Why? Because there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. God the Son. And that means simply this. All that is worthy of praise from the heart and voice of angels in eternity, now, past, and future, all that is worthy of praise in God the Father is also worthy of praise in God the Spirit, and it's also worthy of praise in God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was with God and who was also himself God. He is worthy of praise. So there you have it. He was Logos, the Word, always existent, God, worthy of our praise. That's the Word. Don't leave him there. There's another verb that's very critical. The Word made. Jesus made. And watch how he phrases this. In verse 3 he says, All things were made through him. Who? Lagos, the word. Through the word it was equal with God, all things were made. And then he added in verse number three, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this is a Greek play on words. And what it simply does is states a thing as positive. All things were made by him. That's a reality. And then states it as a negative to emphasize the positive. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in those verses rests the battle between a supposed atheist and evolutionist and a creationist. Jesus made all that exists. And without him, it's not possible that anything exists. What does an evolutionist say? He says, you creationists are fools. You assume way too much. You assume that there was a God forever. Yeah, well, that's where John starts. John says, in the beginning was God. And then he builds on that and says, and God, who was, made all things that now are. The creationists should look back and not be unkind. I don't mean to be harsh against them. But a creationist needs to understand you're just rejecting the most reasonable thing that explains the very existence of our globe. It is the height of folly that would suggest, one, there is no God, and two, all that exists happens as a big collision, collision in the past. Just a big explosion. Every explosion I've ever seen 
didn't end in much order. Did it for you? When it blows up, man, it makes a mess. It does not create stars in their courses that perfectly float across the sky. It does not create living things like man and woman into whom God breathed the breath of life. An explosion cannot possibly create a thing as complex as our eyeballs that uh, function in such a complex way this limited guy can't even begin to explain how something goes in here, ends up here, and is communicated here. I don't get that. It's only possible because something bigger created it all. You with me? That's exactly what Romans 1 says. What do the constellations, the heavens, what do they declare? They thunder, even his, his, him who was, is, and forever shall be, his eternal Godhead and power. So he who was made all that is or it wouldn't be here. And that's the most reasonable solution to what exists today. Amen? Now John goes on to explain it further with another verb. The word who was and who made all that is now splits the corridor of time and eternity and enters this world. He came. That's what verse 10 says. He was in the world. And the world, or the word, Lagos, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He, God, walked with man. He came to his own creation and world and dwelt among men. By the way, he who came wore the face of an eagle. He came as lofty God in the form of a baby. We celebrated it four months ago. And that baby in a manger and that man who walked here was fully God. So much so that when men beheld him, John goes on to say, they beheld all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. They beheld God and all that he was and is. There's a hymn you have to be careful with that some of us older people sang years ago. And that hymn in its second verse says this. He, when he came, emptied himself of all but love. Be very, very careful. Did he do that when he came or did he do that on the cross? I want to suggest to you and I want to ask you to think through it with me. He did it only on the cross. That's when he gave up all that he was as the Son of God and became a lamb sacrifice for us. He could have called on the cross 10,000 angels, but he gave up that right. He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him 
from that pain and that anguish. But he did not. He gave it up. He laid aside that power. But when he walked among men before the cross, he didn't empty himself of all the love. You know how I know that? Because he made some lepers whole. Because he made the blind to see. Because he made the lame to walk. Because he stood outside the tomb of the dead man and thundered, Lazarus, come forth. And the guy came bouncing out of the grave all wrapped up and they had to unbind him because now he was made to live. And only God could do that. Omnipotent God. So if you're with me, you're getting it. He was fully God when he came. But here's the last verb I want you to see. The word who was, who made, who came, was rejected. Rejected by the world that he came to. For when he came, the world did not know him world of fallen mankind didn't know the one who made the heavens and the earth and didn't even know the one who breathed into their first father and mother Adam and Eve life itself they couldn't distinguish him as God why because their minds were darkened by sin they rejected him. And not only the whole world, but his own, and by that it's a reference, It mean, John means it's a reference to the Old Testament people who were chosen by him, the Jews, through whom he was born. Matthew made that all ultimately and unmistakably clear. He came through the Jews, through the tribe of, uh, through the line of David as a king and was born. Uh, a Jew to us, to the Jews primarily. And it was through the Jews that the very prophecy of his coming was given, and those prophecies were given. It's pretty amazing that even they <coughs> didn't accept the eternal God who made the world their own king. They rejected him, as did all the you're going to be shocked to death now, but it's your turn. <laughs> so what's all that mean? Don't pack up yet. So, Jesus, the Lagos, the Word who spoke everything into being, the creator of the world, what these four verbs say to you is, he loves you. We fundamentalists in our history were very good at saying God condemns the world. We're not so good at saying God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever in the world, Jew or Gentile, would believe on him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Man, God loves you. 
Have you gotten so far removed, you who know that story and have accepted Christ, have you gotten so far removed from the hour when that first dawned on your mind, I mean really grabbed you, the love of God in sending His Son to die so that you can be forever united with the Father? Have you gotten so far removed from that that you forget what an awesome, awesome concept that is? That the Creator God, eternal God, in the person of His Son, loved you so much He died for you. I remember when that dawned on me as a third grade boy. I went home from a church service having accepted that love. And I said, Mom, can I call Grandma? We lived in Illinois, she lived in South Carolina. I got on the phone and called Grandma. Mom said, sure, give her a call. I called Grandma and I said, Grandma, I just accepted Jesus' love. I accepted him as my Savior. And Grandma, on the other side of the phone, said, bless your little heart. And I said, I'd so love to hear that voice again. And over the years, several old ladies have come up to me after services and said, I just want to come up and say, bless your little heart. Don't even try. Nobody can say it like Grandma can say it right. It dawned on me. God loves me. And I wanted Grandma to know it. The next morning I went to school, third grade. Before class started, I raised my hand. And Miss Martin, who was a public school teacher and didn't know the Lord, she said, Larry, what is it? kind of a gruff lady. What is it, Larry? And I said, I just want everybody in the class to know that last night I found out Jesus loves me. And I wanted the whole class to know I accepted his love. I saw the red start here in the bottom of her neck and work all the way to the top of her head. And she didn't know what to do with that except to say, open your math books. Good for you, Larry. Somehow, when you're moved by the love of Jesus, the Lagos, who created the world, that such a lofty, powerful, eternal being would lay aside all that is worthy of praise and honor and become my sin on Calvary's cross. Somehow. That has forever gripped me. I will never get over it. And I know you who have accepted that get it. At a seminary uh, chapel service near the end of the school year, an old pastor was invited to come and speak to the seminarians. And this was his assignment. Tell the class the deepest thing, these seminarians who are about to get their degrees, tell them the deepest thing you've learned from the Word of God. You can have an hour, two, or three, whatever you need. Tell them the deepest thing God ever taught you. He walked up to the podium after he was introduced and said to the soon to graduate seminarians. What's the greatest, deepest thing I've ever learned? 
Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And he sat down. Some poor professor stepped to the podium and said, Thank you, Pastor, but we knew that when we first came to Christ. The assignment was, would you come speak to us and tell us the deepest thing you know? And the old pastor said, I'd be glad to do that. And he wobbled back up to the podium and he looked out one more time and said to the seminarians, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Nothing goes deeper. Nothing goes wider. Nothing goes higher. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more valuable than this priceless treasure. The Word, the eternal Word that came and dwelt among us, loved us so much that He died for us that horrible death on Calvary's tree and then ascended on high, leaving this message behind for all of us to tell, Jesus loves us. The Lagos has spoken, and he calls us to speak it. And then one last. So those who receive Receive a forever relationship with the Father. Those who receive His love receive a forever relationship with God above. Think about it. Listen, death is separation. Stan went home to be with the Lord this week. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He didn't die. He was separated from his body. That is a physical death, but that's not the ultimate death. There's a spiritual death, and we're all born into it. We are born separated from God. Just as when we die physically, we are separated from our bodies. We're born not friends with God or connected to Him, but the Bible even describes us as born enemies of God as sinners going our own way. And man, that Koyinga baby, if you haven't seen him yet, you got to go see him. He's so cute. But he's just like all the rest, a cute little sinner. Gone his own way, separated from God. So thrilling to see a mom and dad who brings the baby before he can even understand where he will hear. And a mom and dad who I know will tell him, Jesus loves you. You can be connected with God rather than separated. He's born separated. And there is a message that is left out that... We in the past preached, but seldom you hear about today. There is a final death called eternal death, which is a forever separation from God that cannot be escaped. It's a place without hope. 
And it's a place without God. And it's not what God has chosen for any man. Man chooses to be separated from God forever. And here's the message from the Word who became, who came to be your Redeemer, your Savior. You can be forever not separated from as you were born. But in this breath, this vapor of life that you have, this moment that you live here, you can now be forever connected with God through the love of His Son who paid the price for your sins. And I beg of you, I beg of you, in this moment, this breath of time, all you have to do is say yes to the love of God. That's it. He's done all the rest. Right? Just say yes. Yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus paid the penalty that God places upon sin, death. He died in my place on the cross. Yes, I believe that his blood washes over me and cleanses me from all past, present, and future sins. Yes, I believe and receive what you offer for having believed in your son. Yes, I receive the gift of eternal life, not death, not separation from God, but forever connection with God. Oh, I love that word means I have a forever relationship with him. The moment my heart cries out, I believe, yes, I will receive your love. To bow your heart.